All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. Today, we are continuing our week of ultimate divisional crossovers, where the hosts of the various locked on NFC South shows join me to talk about the Atlanta Falcons offseason moves, their 2020 outlook. And we'll also talk a little bit about my critiques of the Falcons all decade team defense. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the locked on podcast network. Your team every day. So, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman. Been covering the Falcons for many years. I'm on Twitter at FalcFans. And, of course, the host of this illustrious Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. And today's episode is another one of our ultimate divisional crossovers, a series that we'll be running week long where the Four of the hosts of the various Locked On NFC South shows, myself, Ross Jackson of Locked On Saints, David Harrison of Locked On Bucks, and Bill Rossetti of Locked On Panthers get together to talk about each team within the division's offseason moves, some of the big question marks still pertaining to the team heading into the season, the things we like, the things that we don't like. So it's a comprehensive sort of follow-up to the ultimate divisional crossovers that we had at the very end of the season or right after the end of the season in back in February. And um, we're going to continue that all week long today. We'll be focusing on, of course, your beloved Atlanta Falcons. Yesterday's episode was New Orleans saints. Tomorrow's will be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then Thursday we will have the Carolina Panthers. If you Tune in for Friday. We will go over um, the listenership, collective listenership of the various shows, sort of votes for who are the top players in the NFC South heading into the season and, and break that down in terms of our preseason all NFC South team. But before we get into that divisional crossover where I will be joined by Ross, David and Bill to talk about the Falcons, I do want to talk a little bit about the Falcons dropping sort of your, you know, dropping their all decade team picks for special teams and defense um, today, or as you guys are listening to this yesterday on Monday, and this is going to be something that uh, Atlanta Falcons.com is going to have, you know, basically two weeks of content on the website devoted to sort of looking back at the decade and kudos to them for finding some great content in the middle of the summer leading into training camp. And that's part of the reason why we're doing the ultimate divisional crossovers because everything has been talked to death at this point, but you know, that's a peek behind the curtain in terms of us content creators, but you know, not to sound jaded, always enjoy it. But you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about sort of their all decade team and contrast it with my all decade team for the Falcons that I picked back in April, you know, back in, in you know, so long ago when the world was fresh and new. And uh, you can look, listen to that episode. I think it was April 8th on Lockdown Falcons where I broke it down, but sort of want to highlight some of the differences, the different methodology that I use versus what seemingly Atlanta Falcons.com used before we jump into the ultimate divisional crossover. And, you know, it's interesting that Atlanta Falcons.com, the official all decade team, whatever you want to call it, reached out to local media members, national media members, former Falcons, uh, staff, whatnot, to sort of vote on who they think are deserving, most deserving of being offense, defense, and special teams all decade guys. I was not reached out to, you know, they couldn't have a maverick like me sort of, uh, you know, involved in this process. Otherwise, you know, they, they just couldn't handle, you know, that cold, harsh truth. I'm joking, of course, but 
you know, it's interesting because, you know, they picked 12 players. So we'll talk about the focus on the defense. They picked 12 players for the defense. It was basically 11 starters and a flex. And, you know, they do the thing that, you know, one of the things I complained about on that April episode going back and listening to it was the idea that when the NFL picked theirs, that was why I picked mine at the time, was the NFL basically did the whole defensive end versus D tackle versus linebacker. And that's one of the things that we'll talk about on, um, I believe tomorrow's ultimate divisional crossover in regard to Shaq Barrett and the idea of being an edge rusher versus a defensive lineman and the fact that they don't make those distinctions anymore. But I'm saying all this because when I did my own, I was like breaking down by position. So when I was picking guards, I wasn't picking the two best guards. I was picking a left guard and a right guard. When I was picking linebackers, I was picking a strong side linebacker, a middle linebacker and a weak side linebacker. I picked a nickel cornerback for mine. Someone that played primarily in the slot while the official had sort of a flex position, which happened to go to a cornerback. So what's interesting is, you know, all of this to say is, you know, the nine sort of unanimous picks that the official AtlantaFalcons.com had for their all decade team and sort of who were my first team picks, because again, I picked first and second team were John Abraham, Grady Jarrett, Jonathan Babineau, Deion Jones, Sean Weatherspoon, Desmond Trufant, Brent Grimes, although they picked Brent Grimes as their flex, William Moore and Ricardo Allen, which left the three sort of guys that we differed on on the quote unquote official uh, team was Vic Beasy was their edge rusher. Curtis Lofton was their third linebacker. Robert Alford was their other outside corner. And for me, I picked Adrian Claiborne and Beasy spot, Devondre Campbell and Lofton spot. And I picked Brian Poole in Alford spot. And I feel like at least with Poole and Campbell, given my methodology and sort of picking players specific for positions. It makes sense why I picked those guys over the other alternative. Um, you know, Lofton was my second team middle linebacker. Alford was my second team outside corner. And I picked pool because, you know, he was primarily a nickel guy. And as I explained in that April episode, I was tempted to put Alford as sort of my nickel corner, just because he did spend a decent amount of time playing in the slot across the six seasons that he was here in Atlanta. But I just felt like it was a little bit too much of a cheat. And I wanted to put somebody in there that was truly devoted to playing in the slot there and sort of presumably relatively speaking compared to others excelled in that role. Um, although I know for a lot of people that's debatable with Brian Poole, but it is what it is. So the whole, the big, the probably the big most controversial one that I had was taking Claiborne over Vic Beasley. And a lot of that is due to sort of what you look at when you're judging these sort of individual players. And for those of you that have been regular listeners to this podcast for what, like now five years, uh, you know that I, I think sacks often are overrated when it comes to assessing individual players and you know that Vic Beasley in my eyes is the poster child for why I believe that. And sort of, you know, just to explain it similar to what I did on in April, you know, you look at, yeah, Beasley had 37 and a half sacks across five seasons. Claiborne had 21 sacks across four seasons. So you look at that and you're like, well, you know, clearly Beasley was better, but then you look at the fact that Claiborne had 54 hits across four seasons in 18 less games to Beasley's 46 hits. And I think, as I said in April, I feel like generally speaking, quarterback hits tend to 
correspond a little bit better to guys that are getting consistent pressure on the quarterback. Like, and then you look at, you know, pro football focus with their pressure metrics and, and Claiborne had 191 pressures to Beasley's 210. But again, remember Claiborne played 18 less games um, than Beasley did across his time here in Atlanta. So to me, you know, you know, and for those of you that are longtime listeners, I'm not going to go on a big Beasley rant here. Uh, we've talked about Vic Beasley ad nauseum. Basically the bottom line is, you know, Beasley had was fine here in Atlanta, but was never really sort of, despite his numbers, was never really the go-to guy, was never the guy that you looked to when you were watching a Falcon game or when you were watching film like me. Um, and I, why did I say that? Why did that sound so condescending when I said that like that? Oh, because I'm a film snob. But like when you were sitting down watching the Falcons game and it's like third and seven and you're like, okay, we need to get pressure on Drew Brees or we need to get pressure on Tony Romo or we need to get pressure on, you know, Brian Hoyer, whoever it was, you never looked at Vic Beasley as the guy that was going to deliver in those situations. And to me, that's the, the gut feeling where it's like, you know, if I, if I give you the guy and I'm saying you get four years of Adrian Claiborne or five years of Vic Beasley from this past decade, you're, it's your choice. Who you're going to, who you're going to take in my eyes, it's, it should be kind of a unanimous, like, of course I'm taking Adrian Claiborne, but I know that's, you know, that's not a universal opinion um when it comes to that and you know as someone who has defended Vic Beasley in the past I'm not I've never defended Vic Beasley in terms of his ability to pass rusher I've always defended Vic Beasley in terms of like yeah he's fine he's just not a good pass rusher you know and if you look at him at something other than rushing the quarterback like he's he looks better you know overall in my opinion as a football player uh when you just sort of take rushing the quarterback out of the equation but that's difficult to do when you're job title presumably is to rush the quarterback. But again, that's we're done with Vic Beasley's conversations. It's 2020. We don't have to talk about Vic Beasley anymore. I'm sure he will come up from time to time um, in the ensuing months and probably years as things, you know, look, we're still talking about Chauncey Davis in 2020. So, you know, it's going to come up uh, <laughs> in the future. You know, no one's ever truly uh, gone. We you know what is dead may never die or whatever the, uh, you know, words are from game of Thrones or whatever, but, uh, I, I will leave it at that. Those are sort of my thoughts on the, on the Falcons all decade picks for defense. Um, you know, I think pretty much all of them were pretty good except for, you know, the, the Beasley pick, but yeah. So there you guys have it. And we will continue today's conversation by getting into the ultimate divisional crossover. And I'm pretty confident that there aren't any Vic Beasley references from here on out in the rest of the podcast, but there are plenty of Dante Fowler references. So we will get into that with the Falcons offseason moves coming up on today's lockdown Falcons podcast. But before we get there, I want to let you guys know that you should be subscribed to the locked on NFL podcast hosted by Brian Peacock, Matt Williamson, and get their thoughts on all the things going on around the NFL. Find the Locked On NFL podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you're listening to me right now. Hey guys, we are here for another Ultimate Divisional Crossover, the second of the week, Monday's episode on the New Orleans Saints. Of course, today's episode is, of course, on your beloved Atlanta Falcons, followed up later this week by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and well as the Carolina Panthers. Of course, you guys know me. I'm Aaron Freeman on Twitter, at FalkFans, and I'm joined by my fellow NFC South hosts. Guys, go ahead and introduce yourselves. 
What's going on, y'all? Ross Jackson here from Locked On Saints. You can follow me on Twitter at Ross Jackson NOLA. Glad to be here with you, fellas. David Harrison here from the Locked On Bucks podcast on Twitter at dharrison82. And Billy Rossetti of Locked On Panthers at Bill underscore Rossetti, R-I-C-C-E-T-T-E. So, guys, you know, yesterday's chat about the Saints was fun. Uh, I believe today's chat about the Falcons will be even more fun. And (laughs) we want to kick things off by talking about some of the Falcons offseason moves, talking about their free agent moves as well as their draft moves. And it's interesting because I actually went back prior to us uh, recording this and went back to our February Ultimate Divisional crossover to talk to see what we talked about then because it was so long ago so many things have happened in the world since february but uh i wanted to hear what you guys had question marks going into the offseason in terms of areas of concern it feels like the falcons addressed them i know uh we talked a, a lot about the falcons upgrading their pass rush they went out and got dante fowler they went out and drafted marla davidson in the second round they even traded for charles harris the former first round pick with the miami dolphins after the draft i know there were concerns about filling the possible shoes of austin hooper if they let him walk in free agency they went out and got hayden hurst trading for him at the tight end position from the baltimore ravens i know there were concerns about the running back position because we didn't know what the future of Devontae freeman was going to be at that time and of course the falcons went out there and got none other than todd Gurley. And in addition to that, their number one draft pick was A.J. Terrell. He's going to fill the shoes of Desmond Trufant at the cornerback position. They got their young heir apparent to Alex Mack at the center position and Matt Hennessy in round three. He might also compete for a potential vacancy at the left guard position. And, of course, the biggest offseason move that the Falcons made was in round seven when they picked up Sterling Hoffrichter out of Syracuse, the yes. punter extraordinaire. Yes. <laughs> uh, that is going to be the, the one move that we will look back at this offseason and say, yes, if the Falcons had to draft Sterling Hoffrick, the, the, the big-time punter out of Syracuse, I don't know how they could have possibly gone 12-4 and four and, and went all the way to the Super Bowl. So <laughs> I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on, on these offseason moves, sort of how much do they move the needle? Did they address some of the concerns that you guys had going into the offseason with the Falcons roster? Yeah, uh, I'll kick us off over here from the Saints. Um, look, I, I love the moves that a lot of the uh, a lot of the moves that the Falcons made. I love the moves that they made to bolster that pass rush in particular. Like you mentioned, Marlon Davis was my favorite uh, defensive lineman going into this draft. I really, really liked him. He was part of a great, uh, great defensive line in college, and now he gets to be part of a very good defensive line in uh, in Atlanta as well. The addition of Dante Fowler, who Saints fans have some personal experience with uh, <laughs> and all, and so uh, I, I really love what they were able to do there. You know, AJ Terrell, the uh, cornerback that was drafted the first round, had a bad time the last time he was in the Superdome, but he's still a very talented guy. He's scheme versatile. He himself is versatile. He's a big physical guy. He's got the quickness. He's got fluid hips. He's got a lot of the tools that you want to see uh, in a corner, and I think that a lot of people write him off, particularly Saints fans write him off because of the way that he performed against LSU, which really just like, to me, that's not a barometer that you want to hold any defensive recruits to, is the way that they performed against historically the best offense in college football right so for me i look at all of the other work that he did and he put together some fantastic work over the season so i really like him Uh, i have some questions obviously about uh, todd Gurley, and i think everybody does just in terms of his health and how he's going to hold up and things like that but you know look you saw them be one of the teams in the nfc south as pretty much every team was in the nfc south that brought in some key free agents that brought in some key additions and continue to sort of update and do what they needed to do in order to uh, in order to stay competitive, because this is a, a division that a lot of different players kind of flocked to over the offseason. And the Falcons were definitely a big part of that. 
So for me, uh, you know, it, it's funny actually because we had so at SB Nation, you guys know, we had a rivalry week right uh, recently, and I had to write the post for the website of why I hate the Atlanta Falcons, and I really don't hate the Atlanta Falcons. So I kind of had to reach a little bit. I went to uh, some of the coaching coaching connections, you know, uh, the Mike Smiths, the Dirt Cutters of the world, and then of course uh, Atlanta and Arthur Blank stealing the Buccaneers GM right from under them, only to defeat them uh, late in that season and keep them out of the playoffs. But I, I look at this roster and I just, you know, to me, honestly, Aaron, it kind of seems like they ran in place a little bit. I mean, I like A.J. Terrell. I like some of the players they brought in. Todd Gurley's a huge question mark. But I almost kind of wonder if they really got better up front, you know, with your with your starting 11 on each side and your starting packages, or if they really got better in depth. And when I look at the depth of their roster, I feel like that's where they improved the most, which, you know, week one through eight, I don't know if that's really going to show as much as, as, as Falcons fans as the team themselves would hope. Uh, but then, you know, weeks 18, 8 to 17 and in, into the playoffs, if they make it there, might, you know, might benefit from those depth pieces a little bit better. I guess my real big question, which I'll save for the, the, for the Q&A session uh, at the end of this episode, is really along the offensive line because you guys drafted two of my favorite offensive linemen last year, and Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry. So I'm kind of curious as to what kind of steps you might see them taking. But for me personally, with the Falcons, I feel like they stayed kind of in place, which isn't bad when you consider they finished second place in the NFC South. But then, of course, when you look at what the Buccaneers did, and then uh, we kind of mentioned on the on the Saints episode with the Panthers uh, being kind of a sneaky thing with Teddy Bridgewater in there, you know, uh, you can't really undersell him too much. I wonder if the Falcons hurt themselves in 2020, but maybe did some better things for 2021 and, and moving forward. Yeah, and, you know, I agree. This has been interesting. I, I'm going to go, like, um, I'm going to talk quick about one of the coaching moves, too, because they also had uh, an interesting coaching move. Raheem Morris now comes in. As um, I forget, this is his first year. If I remember, everything feels so long ago with all this stuff going on. Yeah. But uh, this, I, this is his first year as defensive coordinator. Am I correct saying that? He took over defensive play calling on third downs and in the two-minute offense during the bye week last year. Okay. So he's now going to be the full-time full-time D coordinator D coordinator now. Yep. And I mean, you know, Morris has had some, some solid success over his time. You know, we, we know he didn't have the greatest head coaching time, but uh, as a defensive coach, we know he's really solid. So I'm really curious what he's going to come up with, with his defense. But yeah, there's a lot of solid young pieces. I thought Ross made a, a great note on AJ Terrell. I mean, that, that was one of the things that kind of irritated me too. Uh, throughout draft season on A.J. Terrell. Oh, well, he stunk against LSU, blah, blah, blah. Well, when you're facing a team, when you're facing a quarterback that threw 60 touchdowns in a season, you're facing one wide receiver that caught 20 passes, another wide receiver that caught 17, and, oh, by the way, the one that caught 20 is still in college. When you're facing those kind of studs, of course you're going to have a tough time because, of course, the offense is going to get to you because, you know, you have a guy like Joe Brady and – the greatest offense ever, of course they're going to scheme something to to make you look bad. But the other, the rest of the season, he did good. This is like when Teddy Bridgewater was coming in, into the NFL, and he had a lot of great film on field, but then he gets to his pro day, and he kind of stinks. And I was like, oh, well, you had a bad pro day. Let's get everybody get off of this, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, like, he's still a solid player. Like, was it a bit of a surprise they took him at 16? A little bit, but... I totally get the value, or I totally understand the pick. They needed a corner, and Terrell might not have been there in round two. And I think the shock value of that pick, too, was lessened a couple picks later when uh, the Raiders took Damon Arnett, who a lot of people had as, like, a, a second or third round value, and they take him at 19. Now, granted, the Raiders – and 
the back of my mind, I'm still wanting to say Oakland. That's why I'm com- coming back and saying the Raiders. They didn't pick to like 80. So I get, you know, why they took Arnett when they did. But, um, you know, you guys hit kind of hit the nail on the head on some of the na- names that they mentioned. Obviously, Dante Fowler, uh, the basically the replacement to, to Tack McKinley. And then you guys hit the nail on the head with Todd Gurley. What's his health going to be? You know, how is the knee held up? Because obviously he just hasn't been the same since that Super Bowl when, you know, you could argue Sean McVay mismanaged him, whatever the case may be. I do have a question, though. What was it about Tennessee that seemingly every Falcons free agent wanted to go there? I have no idea. (laughs) I mean, Jack Crawford goes there, Ty Sambrello, Vic Beasley. I don't know. I, I guess... I guess Tennessee's building something there. I don't know. But, yeah, Atlanta should be an interesting. And then, obviously, you know, Dan Quinn, I think, is still, once again, on the hot seat. If they have another down here, he finally should get the boot. I totally get why they brought him back. But, boy, I don't know. Atlanta's been very interesting to follow over the last couple seasons. They seem like they have a lot on paper, but then just seems like something happens that just kind of irritates you and make you, make you think, like, how could this happen? Irritate is the right word, uh, Bill. <laughs> uh, if, if, if you listen to Lockdown Falcons, uh, but you know, I, I you know the points you guys made raised about AJ Terrell. I'll, I'll happily admit that I wrote off AJ Terrell all offseason long because of the LSU game. And then when I finally sat down and watched him like a week before the draft, I was like, oh, this is the perfect Falcons pick. This is, makes perfect <laughs> sense for the Falcons to take him in round one. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting with with Todd Gurley. You, you, the questions about his knee, we'll see. You know, I think the expectations is the knee is going to be healthy. The question is going to be, has it taken enough of a step back with that sort of arthritic condition? Are we going to see the Todd Gurley of old or are we going to see a diminished version of Todd Gurley, which is still probably an above average to good starting running back in this league, but not the guy that you can necessarily carry an entire offense like he did for two years with the Rams. So I think that's going to be a big question. Uh, for this Falcon team. We have more questions coming up for this Falcon team uh, with one of those being the one that you guys raised about this coaching staff. And we'll sort of talk a little bit more about where the Falcons fit within the NFC South. Have they elevated themselves? Are they the number one team to challenge the Saints? We'll get more into that topic coming up later today on today's ultimate divisional crossover here on uh, your entire NFC South slate of Lockdown Podcast shows right now. So, guys, we are here for another Ultimate Divisional Crossover, Aaron Freeman, Lockdown Falcons host. And we've talked a little bit about the Falcons offseason moves and whether or not they have moved the needle. I'm I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts. They sort of, thanks to the heroics of Deion Jones against Jameis Winston at the end of last season, they were able to move into second place this for the NFC South, but I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts. I know, Ross, you might have a strong opinion. David, you might have a differing opinion on sort of if the Falcons are the biggest challenger to the Saints, and I guess we'll we'll decide if Bill's the tiebreaker here to decide uh, <laughs> to answer that question. But uh, I'm, I'm curious where you guys see the Falcons sort of slating in and fitting in within this NFC South division. I was going to say, uh, let's let uh, let's let David jump in first, because I'm inter- more interested in responding to him. <laughs> um, so my opinion of where the Falcons are going to slide in in the NFC South in 2020 kind of goes in line with what I said about kind of how I view their roster, where 
to me, they look like they really kind of just ran in place. You know, you get AJ Terrell, which I think is a great talent. And for the record, I came out of that national championship game, honestly, more disheartened about Grant Delpit and Christian Fulton because I felt like their misgivings or their mistakes in that game were more diagnostic related, more uh, physical trait related. Whereas AJ Terrell, I think he just, it was, it was a lot of spotlight. And, you know, we all know if you're, if you're a defense and you're saying, Hey, cornerback, make all the plays and keep us in this game, you're already in a hole. So I feel like Terrell just got beat. You know, he just, he just got beat by other good players, by good throws and by the situation in the game. I don't, I didn't see as many uh, mechanical flaws in his game as, as the other guys. Uh, but anyway, moving forward, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at with them. You know, uh, Todd Gurley, if he's at his best, obviously he's an upgrade over what they've had in the past. AJ Terrell, I feel like in year one is probably going to be uh, an equal to, to Trufant, if not even a little bit of a, of a downgrade. So that's just kind of where I look at them. And then when you look at the New Orleans Saints, um, you look at the experience they have against this team, especially guys like Drew Brees, Sean Payton, uh, Michael Thomas knows this team very well, et cetera, et cetera. They haven't done a whole lot to really change things. The coaching staff is the same. The players by and large are the same. The play style, the play calling is going to be the same. There's one thing that I know that the Saints know that every Buccaneers and really every NFC South fan knows is that Dirt Cutter is going to run Dirt Cutter's offense. It doesn't really matter uh, what else is going on around him. So I just, I look at the Falcons coming in and when you stack up the NFC South, the Buccaneers have, have changed significantly. They've had some, some upgrades and some facelifts. The Carolina Panthers are really a completely new team um, if, when you compare 2020 to 2019. So the Falcons are kind of the one where they kind of come in doing what you expect them to do, which could also play into their into their favor, you know, if the Saints kind of overlook them and you get them into that trap game situation. But So I feel like because of that, the Falcons have dropped down to number three in the NFC South, not by a wide margin, but I just think they've dropped down to number three a little bit. And then if the Panthers can catch up, uh, can accelerate their development this year, uh, they may even challenge them to push them all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, I am I am very much of the belief that the Falcons are the biggest challenger to the Saints for the NFC South. I don't know, a lot of people are going to hear that and be like, well, 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 but the Bucks they added Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski and all this. And I get it. I completely understand. I'm not invalidating any of that. I'm just really taking a look honestly and truly at the fact that this offseason – is unlike any offseason that we've seen since 2011, right? Since there was the the holdout and uh, these guys weren't able to play. And so when I look at this, or not even the holdout, excuse me, the lockout, it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. But um, when I look at what the Falcons have done so far this offseason, they've made improvements where, or they've, they've brought in the pieces that they need in order to translate to improvement at the places where they needed those improvements. And they're walking in with a, you know, consi- with some consistency in terms of coaching, some consistency in terms of signal caller with Matt Ryan there, and some consistency in terms of the people that are going to be communicating. Um, you know, the offensive line is going to be a big question mark. The secondary is going to be a big question mark. And pass defense, I think, is going to be a big question mark. But I think you can say that just about any team in the NFC South, for the most part, that the secondary, there are some big question marks. Even for the Saints, there are some question marks in terms of how does Norris Jenkins and how does Malcolm Jenkins, like how do those guys affect the secondary? Do they improve the secondary? Or is there a lack of translation there that ends up becoming an issue? I I don't think that that will be the case, but it's certainly a question uh, that you can ask. And so when I look at the Falcons, I just think that they have far less that they didn't choose to have to overcome than the other three teams in the NFC South outside of the Saints. And what I mean by that is that they have the same signal caller, some consistency across the board. And I think that that is going to be a big part of what's going to separate teams. You know, the Kansas City Chiefs are returning, what, like 20 of 22, 21 of 22 starters. That's huge for them. That's huge for them in an offseason like this. And I think that because of the 
big changes that we see the other teams in this division making versus the types of shifts that both the Saints and the Falcons made. The Saints and the Falcons should come out of this offseason in a little bit of a better position more quickly than these other two teams. I do think that Tampa Bay is going to be very good. I do think that Tampa Bay is going to be more of a challenger in the following year, and I think that they'll prove to be a greater challenger toward the end of the season. But going into this season, just based upon what we're seeing so far with the way that this sort of weird, wacky, sort of truncated offseason is, I put the Falcons as the biggest challenger at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a very valid uh, way to go about that. I mean, and and that is something that's crossed my mind as well. I may be underselling that impact. You know, I, I can admit mm-hmm. that. Um, I just kind of feel like hopefully, right, I don't know how many snaps Tom Brady and, and his offensive teammates have taken in these little private workouts they've had, but the ones know, that Bruce keep getting shut down. On, <laughs> yeah, Bruce Arians went on record talking about a lot of the, the missed snaps that they've had and the missed reps they've had but I think mm-hmm. Tom and his teammates are kind of making up for some of those hopefully in, in the way that they're communicating and then some of the mental reps are getting yep. in the conversations they've had all off season. Um, so yeah definitely uh, so my my stance on that whole thing definitely could be underselling the factor of consistency in such a weird offseason mm-hmm. yeah and, that, and that's a great point you know it's um and this was something I thought about um just as a general football stance it's it's pretty crazy to think that the last time we all got together to record back in February, we were more confident of a 2020 season than we are today in the middle of July. That's how crazy this off season has been. But I think that's a great point by Ross is that, you know, cause I've even touched on this with the Panthers, these teams that are almost like brand new, a lot of new pieces, they haven't had, OTAs, they haven't had, they're going to have a truncated training camp. We don't know what kind of practice time they're going to have, how much, or even how much of a group can be together. I mean, there's reports saying that rosters will be cut to 80 and they might practice like 20 at a time. So for a team like the Buccaneers with these new faces, that's going to be really interesting. That being said, I do kind of lean toward the Buccaneers as probably the top challenger just because, I don't know, I, I just tend to like the pieces, uh, you know, not just Tom Brady, but obviously um, the weapons that Brady has outside of him, you know, and I like that Tom or that uh, the Buccaneers and, you know, we'll touch on this uh, when we dive more into the Buccaneers, but even in the draft when they went out and got Tyler John, a pretty talented receiver out of Minnesota, really intrigued by him. They went out and they, you know, tweak the offensive line a little bit because they went on, they got Joe Haig from the Indianapolis Colts to to help with the offensive line. Um, now, of course, they're in a bit of a battle with Shaq Baird in, in terms of the franchise tag. The NFL should just make an edge franchise tag, by the way, but that's a story for another time. But um, even looking at, like, the Falcons' schedule, you know, and I kind of touched on this with the Saints, just looking at, like, the back end of that Falcons' schedule, I mean, boy, the schedule makers didn't do them any favors. You know, you got... Uh, or I don't know if I should say do them any favors, but it's certainly very division backlog. So if they're going to compete for this division or at least compete for a wild card, they're definitely going to earn it after their bye in week 10. I mean, they've got two of three against the Saints coming out of the bye, and then two of their last three are against the Buccaneers. And then the three games that are sandwiched in there are all against the AFC West, which just happens to include, of course, in week 16, the uh, those Kansas City Chiefs that we talked about, which – like Ross said, they only have, I think, one starter that they're replacing, which is uh, Stefan Wisniewski. Other than that, and 
and they just got even more dangerous because they have a, a tr- they drafted a tremendous running back and another of Ross's boys in uh, Clyde Edwards Elaire. So Hydro. that's right. And I'm a huge CEH fan, probably going to target them in fantasy, by the way. So at- Atlanta's tough. Atlanta's tough. It feels like every year we, we talk about Atlanta as a team that can really go either way. And, you know, you hope the injury bug doesn't bite them as it has the last couple of years. And this might be a little bit of a hot take, but I mean, Matt Ryan, let's start. Uh, let's see if he's going to start pushing a little bit more, too. I know he's been getting a lot of flax, you know, some of it certainly undeservingly. But um, let's see if Matt Ryan can continue to rally the troops. Um, but I, I love the weapons that they have. I think this is going to be a big season for Calvin Ridley. Um, really intrigued with um, even the guy like Laquan Treadwell. And then we mentioned uh, Hayden Hurst, what he's going to do in that offense. So this is, uh, this is going to be fascinating. The Falcons are always so fascinating every year. Yeah, I think you guys hit the nail on the head with, with some of the big questions surrounding the Falcons. It, it seemed like a big question mark of the team to – decision to retain their coaching staff um, after a a disappointing 2019 season. But now, as Ross so eloquently pointed out, you can argue that that's a potential strength thanks to, you know, the the hectic offseason that we've had thanks to COVID-19 and other factors. And, you know, I think you guys raise excellent points. I I feel like if this was a normal offseason, I would have no issue if someone wanted to put the Bucks as the sort of number two seed in the NFC South over the Falcons, just because we know the Bucks' potential and, and they potentially made a massive upgrade at the quarterback position, which we'll talk about later this week. Uh, in fact, on tomorrow's episode uh, and, and debate that and discuss that. But you look at the Falcons and you don't know sort of what, you know, if any of these moves that they've made, how big an upgrade, you know, you don't have the big sexy move like going out there and getting a Tom Brady and, and luring, you know, Gronk out of retirement or anything like that with the Falcons. You just see some solid additions, you know, some lateral moves in some cases, they got younger at some positions, they got older at other positions. Um, And I think it goes back to one of the points that David has made, which is, you know, how much do you trust in Dirk Cutter? You know, what Bill was talking about with Raheem Morris taking over play calling. Can this coaching staff get more out of this group? Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I'll let you guys have the floor. If, if you have questions related to those uh, topics or if you have other questions about the Falcons heading into the season besides the ones that we've already covered today. I'll ask one quick question, just continuing on the coaching staff, uh, because I'm, I'm sure you talked about it on your show, but what was it that, led the Falcons to the decision to retain that coaching staff, particularly Dan Quinn at head coach? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. They beat the saints on the road after the bye, um, pretty handily, if I can say so myself. And you can, uh, but I'm not going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then they beat the 49ers on the road again. And I think it was really the 49ers game that sort of pushed them over the edge. And mm-hmm. it was just a decision by Falcons owner Arthur Blank saying like, okay, is this the team that we're going to be, you know, and, and I think that's the big question about the Falcons. Are they going to come into 2020 looking like the team they finished 2019 as when they won six out of the last eight games, or are they going to do what they've done the last two years and start pretty slow last year, obviously a one in seven start the year prior to that one in three start um, before they started to figure things out, but still only managed to finish seven and nine. 
So it, it's one of those things where I think the Falcons are, are betting on the team that beat the Saints and the team that beat the 49ers showing up this year. And if they are that team, then I think they would more side with what Ross's take is as sort of the number two team in the division. But if they don't live up to that expectation, then, you know, it's going to be more what David and Bill were saying, where there's just too, still too many lingering questions about this Falcon team. Gotcha. Yeah, and I have, I have kind, of, kind of a follow-up to that, Aaron. Um, I mean, Arthur Blank, you know, his reputation anyway, from my understanding, is that he's, he's not a guy who likes to fire coaches midseason, and I completely understand that. Uh, bringing this coaching staff in, like you said, because of the strong finish to last season, is this a situation where you could see – I mean, has Arthur ever – I don't know if you know the history of it. Has Arthur ever fired a coach midseason? And is this a situation where if the Falcons come out and start, you know, one and four, one and five, one and six, is this a situation where you could see – uh, Dan Quinn removed in season and maybe replaced by, I mean, I would put Raheem Morris in there before I put Dirk Cutter in there, or I don't know who your special teams coach is, maybe that guy. Um, but is this a situation where you can see this happen with the Falcons in 2020? Uh, first, I want to say, David, I appreciate always having you on because you are with me on the Dirk Cutter slander on, on this <laughs> podcast because that's all we do on Lockdown Falcons. But I appreciate that. Uh, you know, the the only coach he's technically fired midseason was Dan Reeves back in 2003, but he didn't really fire Dan Reeves. He just basically told Dan Reeves that he wasn't going to keep him after the season. Mm-hmm. And then Dan Reeves was like, then why am I still here? And so basically Dan Reeves, I wouldn't say quit, but just kind of was just like, I'm, I'm you know, there's no point in me finishing out the season if I can't keep my job. Um, so technically, he has fired a coach midseason, and I think Wade Phillips took over as the interim coach for like the last three or four games. Obviously, they had the Bobby Petrino incident where he didn't get fired. He just decided he <laughs> wanted to, you know, leave the building and, you know, didn't tell anybody. So it's one of those things where Arthur – and then when you look at back at Mike Smith's dismissal, like – we knew going into that week 17 game in which they got blown out by the Panthers back in 2014, like it, the, it leaked that the Falcons had hired a coaching firm to, you know, find the next head coach. And that got leaked like the week or two before the end of the season. So he had basically made the decision to move on from a coach uh, prior to the end of the year. So, you know, it's not necessarily in his history to fire a coach midseason. But he's made multiple times he's made the decision to move on from a coach, you know, during the season at some point, uh, pretty much in, in every instance. And that was one of the things that we talked about, David, you know, last year where you, we did a crossover and you asked me, like, is is Dan Quinn going to get fired? And I was like, I think so. And then the next day they announced that he was keeping the job. Um, yeah, it was good so, timing. We appreciated yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, well, we, we definitely enjoyed that. <laughs> so, um, you know, thanks, Arthur Blake. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's going to be interesting because if the Falcons get off to a rocky start again this season, like they did the last couple of years, as I mentioned, I don't see how he won't have a choice not to move on at that point in time because basically the whole point of him keeping Dan Quinn was, okay, you finished the season six and two, you need to pick up where you left off. So if they get off to like a one and four start or something like that, it just it's hard for me to – imagine a scenario where he's going to be able to retain his job for, for that much longer. Um, but we'll, we'll have to sort of see, but it, it's not to answer your question. It's not necessarily in the MO of Arthur Blank, but it's not that far removed from him in terms of some of his past decisions that I wouldn't say he wouldn't do it, but he just hasn't done it so far. Okay. Fair enough. And I just want to reiterate, listen, I, to all Falcons fans, I don't hate Matt Ryan. Okay. 
I don't hate Matt Ryan. I think he's very, very good. Obviously, he struggled a little bit in in 2019. Was it was even good when you know just looking at his numbers, still pretty good when he was pressured. So don't come at me saying I absolutely hate Matt Ryan because it will come I don't. for you, Bill. It will come for <laughs> you. Well, you already got the smoke, fam. It's too late. You already got the I know. smoke. <laughs> It's all good. I could take it, but just remember, I I love Matt Ryan. But um, I, like like I said, they're they're just an intriguing team. Yeah. It's all yeah I, I, I guess that's the bottom line for me. They're they're a fascinating team to watch every year. They they really are. They're they're just so fun to watch. Yeah. I you know it, it's it's their ceiling is high, their floor is low, and where they sort of fall into that, um, or I shouldn't say low, like they're you know they could be like a three and thirteen team. I'm just saying like relative to the expectations of what they should be. I think, you know, their floor is relatively low and, and potentially another seven to nine type of finish, which would be very disappointing. So as you guys have already mentioned, I think this is a playoffs or bust type of season for Dan Quinn and his coaching staff. If they don't make the playoffs, it's hard for me to see them surviving. But then again, as we've discussed many times so far this week, this is going to be a different kind of season Uh due to, you know, outside factors beyond football. So, you know, there's always that caveat that you know, who knows what happens this season in terms of uh, how ownership like Arthur Blake sort of judge and what standards are judging it by, because we don't know if, you know, what weird stuff was going to continue to happen in 2020. But I, I do think the the Falcons journey this upcoming season is going to be a fascinating one to watch. And we'll see if they can live up to these expectations and, and be a playoff team, or are they going to do the thing that they've done the last couple of years and continue to be uh, inconsistent and, and disappoint? But I appreciate you guys um, joining me for another Ultimate Divisional Crossover. I'm looking forward to talking more insight into Tom Brady and uh, Antoine Winfield on tomorrow's uh, Bucks-focused Divisional Crossover. So I appreciate you guys uh, again and uh, looking forward to doing this two more times or three more times this week. Appreciate you, Aaron. All right, guys. There you have another ultimate divisional crossover in the books. As I said, Buccaneers on tomorrow's episode, Panthers on Thursday, and then the preseason all NFC South team will be broken down on Friday's episode. And likely, as I sit here today, probably will also, in addition to talking about the Bucks for that ultimate divisional crossover on tomorrow's episode, probably get a little bit more into the AtlantaFalcons.com all decade team picks for special teams because we, of course, know how much special teams matters. But if you want to provide your feedback to anything we do on this podcast, of course, you can do so as well as send in any questions because that can be some additional content that we can do to fill up the week uh, remaining for us with this ultimate divisional crossover week across the Locked On Podcast Network. So you can send in any questions you have to the email address at LockedOnFalcons at mail.com or send them in via Twitter or Facebook, both of which are Locked On Falcons. And of course, guys, make sure you are subscribed to the Locked On NFL podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you are listening to my illustrious voice right, right now. Until then, guys. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day.